how close did you live to a park when you were growing up? And did you use the park often? What was that experience like? I was about equal distance from a playground that was for newer homes that they had in their neighbor in their section. It was kind of like behind the houses that I lived in. But right down the street from me at the end of the street was um I think they're called like a stormwater drainage. It's, we called it the pit. It was just a pit <laughs> of concrete that you could go in. Now, if it rained a lot, it filled up. But if it was just a regular day, it was just a pit that you could go in. And people, that was where I learned how to ride a bike. Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast. I'm Nemo, and we have Jasmine. How are you doing today? Mm, it's okay. Everything's is going as best as it can. Um, yeah, I can't complain. Honestly, I'm traveling soon and have some PTO at work, so I'm really looking forward to that and you would think like in California there's nothing really because it's so sunny all the time but like it's still you still got to work out here in the sun so how you doing Nemo that is that is real I on the other hand I did all my traveling do not have any trips planned so I'm just here practicing stillness and finding um peace throughout throughout the throughout the days um but you look good I, they, you all can't see us but we look good <laughs> Mm -hmm. I cut my hair y'all so um I don't know when we'll have some pictures out but yeah so I don't know if everybody knows what a big shop is but that's done and so everybody's out here yes well today we are excited for this topic um it dates back to an episode some of you all may remember grown folks business planning for older adults and so as you know one of the missions of the podcast is to amplify urban planning topics for all um, for all backgrounds, but we also specifically emphasize groups who may be underrepresented or under um, under considered truly in planning spaces. Um, so today we're going to be talking about young people. So I'll turn it over to Jasmine. So we wanted to have this episode for several reasons. You know, you're having a conversation about older adults led us to thinking about, well, what about younger adults? A lot of planning kind of happens for abled-bodied, middle-aged people, right, who are commuting to work and from work and stuff like that. But we wanted to spend some time thinking about younger children. So when we're describing children in this episode, we're thinking about people under the age of 18. So elementary, middle, and high school students, that K-12 range. And so just some high-level stats to kind of frame the conversation. When you think about a child only 20% of their time is spent in a school. And so the remaining amount of their time, 80% of that time is spent doing stuff with their family, traveling, uh, playing outside or not playing outside. So they have all this time left to explore the built environment. And then 
when you look at it another way, children represent 9% of the United States population. And so not a insignificant percentage of the population. And so how they move around cities and towns and rural areas is critically important. We need to know how they operate, particularly because they're smaller, they are less mature, so they might take more risks than the rest of us. And so we wanted to create this episode dedicated to the kids. If you know a kid, bring them in. And so we want to explore how the built environment impacts and shapes their lives. We will explore how children play and travel. So we're taking this from a outdoor, literally playing, talking about parks, talking about green spaces, and then also talking about child pedestrian safety. And so Nemo, just a question to get us started. How close did you live to a park when you were growing up? And did you use the park often? What was that experience like? Yeah, so I would say I was kind of equal. And I grew up in the suburbs, as I think people know. Um, the suburbs of Seattle. There, I was about equal distant from a playground that was for newer homes that they had in their neighbor in their section. It was kind of like behind the houses that I lived in. But right down the street from me at the end of the street was um I think they're called like a stormwater drainage. It's, we called it the pit. It was just a pit <laughs> of concrete that you could go in. Now, if it rained a lot, it filled up. But if it was just a regular day, it was just a pit that you could go in. And people, that was where I learned how to ride a bike in just this large concrete space. Um, but also lived walking distance from my elementary school that also, you know, if it's in school, is not in session, people could just go on that playground too. Um, or that park that, um, that was in a neighborhood for newer homes. But I would say like going into the area with the park with, for the newer homes, it did feel like that was a close knit community. And so people would be looking like, you don't live in these houses. Like, why are you here? I had a friend who did. And so I think I would feel a little bit more secure when I was with her because at least they know her and she lives with them, but still two little black girls in an area at the time that wasn't, um, as diverse as it is now, right. This is like 20 years ago, um, 20, 20 less <laughs> years ago. So yeah, that was, that was like the, the first thoughts that come to mind when I think about like what my closest park access was. What about you? I mean, I think it's interesting because a lot of towns and maybe the town you lived in had this requirement, but if you built a certain number of houses as like a development, you had to then build a public park for them to use. Um, but I had never known anyone who lived um, in any of those new developments. And so I had never been in them. I also grew up in the suburbs um, and I lived walking distance to several parks. <laughs> um, one on my street, another like around the corner and then another kind of further away that I never really went to. But like if I wanted to go that far I could because my cousins lived over there and I spent so much time at the park like the park was a place I would go to all day Saturday after church on Sunday after school on the weekdays I would meet all my friends there um and then the McDonald's was close to the park so go to McDonald's eat at the park like we had a great time I spent a lot of time at the park a lot of my fondest memories of my childhood were spent at that park um and it recently got redone like since I went home to visit my family and I'm like wow this is such a much nicer park than it was when we were playing there but times change and neighborhoods improve but I don't know if kids really play outside like they used to they have all this technology and stuff so 
I don't know, but I, it's funny. I saw a tweet one time. It was like, one day you and your friends just never went back to the park. And I was like, that is so crazy. Like we really did just like grow out of playing outside. When you said you went back and it was a lot nicer, is it that they made improvements to that park or? Yeah, they improved the park. We have like a workout. There's like an outdoor workout section. Now the basketball court is like paved like newly paved the tennis court is newly paved the jungle gym area is brand new like everything's brand new and I mean I had been going there for like 10 years of my life and it had never been renovated so it was likely time for it to happen but it is an interesting time because suburban gentrification is prevalent nobody ever talks about it but it's real yeah, I wonder if we if we were to have like a baby Gen Z on the on this call, like what they're, you know, I think about like this might kind of be like my brother who's 14. Like I, if we were to ask him the same question of what's your park experience like, he might be like, I don't know, like just shrug. Like he may really not have, he may really not have an answer. Um, but uh, we hope to have a follow-up episode on this topic where we get to speak with someone who's working with kids actively on in thinking about these topics. So guess we will hear a little bit more about that. Um, from another professional side, um, I wanted to highlight um, a landscape architect that's based in New York, um, Mr. Emmanuel Ting, and I hope I'm saying his last name right, I really do. Um, but as we were doing research for this episode, um, uh, he came up um, as super influential in terms of designing public spaces for children. Um, and so he recently retired, I believe this year, from the New York City Parks um, and Rec Department after 30 years. Um, and he first designed the magical play space in the neighborhood that he grew up in. And he grew up um, in the Crown Heights area in Brooklyn. Um, and the, both for himself, he acknowledged how much parks allowed him the space to think. But I think the specific design elements that he was intentional about in the parks that he designed was also significant. In 2011, he, uh, won a Sloan Public Service Award um, for his ability to design um, and uh, transform space um, and was seen as a reason that New York has great parks and a green future. Um, and some of the things that he prioritized, one of the playgrounds, they sit on a 5% grade. And so that is accommodating for both wheelchair users. Um, so they're able to have a slope, whether that's, you know, willing themselves. And I also think about mothers who may have strollers um, where it's a little bit easier for them to push to and acknowledging the curves in the landscape. Um, he also prioritized natural natural spaces, so big trees um, to make it feel more comfortable. Um, and the, you know, even though he's retired in the article, which we'll link in the show notes, he said he'll probably keep sketching parks until um, the day he dies and feels alive when he's doing it. Um, and post-retirement, he's an advisor for new city parks. That's a nonprofit organization that helps create parks for underserved communities. Um, so as we mentioned in the beginning of this episode, thinking about children put underserved for various factors, whether that's based on race, income, um, geography, um, that's another theme throughout this episode as well. Um, and so to dig into the data on some of that, um, there was a study done um, using 2010 census data that found that 61% of people between five and 17 lived within half a mile of a public park. Um, however, only 18% lived within a census tract of half a mile of two parks. Um, so that's another aspect. I don't think we've gotten it. We talked about parks in different episodes, but 
you know, the density of how many people are in a space that you grew up in. And I just know Jersey is densely populated too. So even though there were those parks that were close, it makes me think about how many people and houses and kids were all trying to maybe use those parks at the same time, which doesn't impact the experience in the park. If you go to a park and you want to swing on a swing and everybody's on the swing and everybody's on the, on the jungle gym, you're like, I'm just going to go home. I think the concept of density is kind of more important than the distance to or distance from like sure there's census tracts in let's take the densest place in the united states in new york where i'm throwing out a number a thousand people live in a half mile of a park but we all can't use it like so we need more than that and so i think and we were trying to find um that kind of granular level data um but I think that would have been helpful too, is to understand like the density or maybe people per park acre, something like that would have been a good reference also. Yeah. And that study, one of their findings was that the main disparity in the data they saw with parks was between urban and rural. Um, so they found that youth in urban areas have greater access to parks, access just meaning that, you know, like Jasmine said, the distance how close that park may be to their home, but in rural areas, they don't live as close to parks, but then you can also maybe assume that those in rural areas, they have larger yards or they have more space in their own home or their community that might not be considered a park, but maybe they have trails or other outdoor amenities. Um, so that was one of the main disparities that they found between urban and rural. But I think it's when thinking about parks and access, it's also important to think about those who, though at least what the study found is that youth who have parks nearby are more physically active than those who do not live near parks. Um, and uh, when we think about the public health aspect of the built environment, if youth are not able to get outside or do not have a safe distance or a safe path to, tra path to travel um, to get that physical activity, how that impacts their physical health too. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really important in terms of the park space because it's a public resource in a lot of urban areas you have to pay to do sports after school programs and stuff like that and so that's where a lot of kids get their physical activity they might run track play football play basketball play soccer play tennis whatever but those are things that you need equipment you need to pay to have a tennis racket pay to have a baseball bat pay to have gloves like those are things you have to buy the park you can just go to and run around or swing or jump and so having the access and access to a quality park too is like critically important. And so with thinking about some of those stats and park access and just public space in general, when it comes to kids, um, the Brookings Institute is leading a concept that's been up and coming for the last few years called playful learning landscapes or PLL. And so this came up, um, this got some traction during COVID granted the conditions of the world that we were in and kids were not going to school. Um, but Brookings and other cities and other um, organizations are trying to continue this momentum that was gained during COVID to think about what are kids doing outside of the classroom. Um, and so um, in some of their reports it shared by 2030, up to 60% of the world's urban population will be under 18 years old. Um, and when thinking about that for the future, which 2030 is not that far away, but city development, like Jasmine mentioned earlier, 
a lot of what we see of cities today was developed during the industrial age. And at that time, they were just thinking about the men's who were working during that time and how they got around, but they weren't considering women, children, or older adults. And that's still a lot of the structures that we see in place today. Um, and so one of the uh, major tenets of the PLL and playful learning landscapes is thinking about child-friendly urban planning is to combine learning as children are in their prime developmental years and then looking at their development both in school and out of school. And so PLL's main aim is to address learning inequalities that exist outside of the classroom because 20% of the time is in the classroom versus 80% of time that they spend outside of the classroom. And I don't know if I felt that way when I was growing up. Like I felt like school was my life, but now I feel like when I come home from work, now it feels like the other, I feel like 80% of my time feels like I'm working and then 20% is me doing other stuff. I don't know, but you know, yeah, kids do just maybe have that free time um, where they're not bogged down by other tasks because they just go to school and they can go home. But that's like, that's huge that 80% of their time in how they learn. And I think, you know, we know now to really learn something and be immersed in it, it has to consume a lot of your time outside of just the classroom um, or outside of that one session a week or two sessions a week that you may have with an instructor. And so that's really what this concept of playful learning landscapes is trying to take the built environment, community and education and bridge it all together. And so some of the examples that they uh, try to make this concept come to life, um, they do it in parks, um, laundromats, uh, supermarkets, bus transit, libraries, and streets. And so I thought the laundromat um, example was interesting, especially in urban areas where they may not have laundry facilities at home, but a lot of kids may go with their parents to do laundry. This is random, but I feel like kids are always in Costco. <laughs> So I I wonder what a, le a playful learning landscape would look like in Costco. Um, it's funny because the kids are definitely always in the grocery store, Costco, Target. And I'm like, as a single person without kids, I'm like, I need to bring y'all kids. Home. Like, ain't nobody at the house. That they <laughs> and I was a kid that they, I left. I, I know when you're not supposed to, but I sat in the car, like crack the window. Don't get out. Don't let nobody in. And wait right here until I get back. Like that's how that's how I grew up. But I'd be like, "Damn, you got to bring your kids with you everywhere." Right, right. No offense, no offense. But see, I was definitely in the Costco and in the grocery stores, but I knew better than to just run around. Like I, like I wasn't just gonna be running around. I was very much stayed with my parent, went down the aisles, and was behaved. But um, so the Clinton Foundation, um, uh, former President Bill Clint Bill Clinton's. Uh, uh, philanthropy organization, they had a PLL concept called transforming laundromats. And so they partnered with the Laundry Cares Foundation to develop tools and resources that created playful, literary rich spaces for children inside laundromats. And so they created literacy programming with using libraries um, in over 5,000 laundromats. Um, so they received signage, toolkits, and other educational materials. Um, and I felt like that was really cool. Like you're going to the laundromat thinking, you know, you're just going to be sitting there or maybe, you know, these days they might just give the child an iPad or something to distract them, but to go into a space and have built in ready-made materials to continue their education and bring that space to life. 
Um, something similar was done in supermarkets, um, also by the Clinton Foundation. And so um, they define this as a low-cost intervention to spark adult-child conversations. Um, and so um, one, enriching their language, but then also using the physical environment of a supermarket to do that. Um, and then also they had some, uh, you know, if English is not your first language, they had concepts for that as well. Um, and then thinking about streets, I know also during COVID, open street um, concepts became popularized, shutting off streets to cars. And so Philly created play streets where they closed streets during the summer. And in order for a organization to take part in this or to be a lead, they had to offer summer meals. Um, so not only would they close the street, but they would also be able to provide food, especially again during COVID, seeing those students who were not in school and maybe not getting free and reduced lunch, not knowing where their meals were coming from. So I thought it was important that they prioritize both nutrition, learning, and public space through that example. I always like the open street concepts and things like that because um, streets are very dangerous for kids. Like they used to tell us like, oh, look, wait, look what ways before you cross the street. But now there's so many other distractions. You have your cell phone that can distract you as you're driving or as you're walking. There's a big old screen in your car that you got to click around and figure out everything can distract you while you're driving. Um, and then I'm consistently on Twitter because I'm in planning Twitter, seeing like these huge trucks and then like a kid in front of it. And like, if you were driving this truck, you couldn't see. And I don't know what regulation is happening, but those trucks are a prop. Like I've walked past them and I'm not a child and I couldn't see over the grill of the truck. And I'm like, how is this even? And then you, then some people put tires on and now they even higher off the ground. It's like, that doesn't seem like it's safe at all. Like if you can't see someone at a crosswalk, how are you going to know that they're in the crosswalk? Like before you drive through it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, that's just one example. And then I remember when the, the streets came out during COVID, I thought those were a great idea. I don't remember. I do remember an article, maybe we can find it in Lincoln and show notes, but it talked about like the disparity of how they were scattered across the city. So did you see anything in Philly that was like, they made sure it was an equitable distribution of the play streets? I did not, but we can, they did do some evaluation reporting specifically on that project. Um, a lot of these things kicked off in like 2021, 2022. So they're still, they're still analyzing how they want to do future evaluation too. But I know specifically in Philly, um, they did a little bit of a deeper dive so we can add that. Um, but that was kind of what I was going to close uh, this section with is at least the information is out there and accessible. If you're currently working for a city or currently working for an organization that wants to think about public space for kids and for the youth. Um, and uh, they really have, you know, a library of best practices of what you can do. Um, a lot of these, well, one, one of the main takeaways from just initial round of projects is that it does take a lot to be meaningful in terms of making sure that the information is everywhere. So if this is one community, there needs to be learning spaces at the grocery stores, there needs to be learning spaces at the libraries, there needs to be learning spaces at the bus stops and transit hubs. It can't just be like one scattered. It needs to be a consistent thing that a child is seeing in their neighborhood that they can have these learning opportunities to be effective. Um, and so their main advice too is to bring in 
child developmental experts and developmental scientists to be part of the team working with designers and urban planners. Um, and I think um, Jasmine's going to get into this in a bit with thinking about traffic safety, but I think it's been in the, a couple of years in the making now where planners, engineers have been thinking about safety for all people on the roadway. And I think that's a cultural shift in the space that can also be done when thinking about planning for young people. Um, and so I think acknowledging that cultural shift is bringing in educational experts into conversations when we think about designing spaces, especially in improvement projects. And so that was another recommendation is that this doesn't have to be huge standalone projects, but when spaces are, you know, when bus stations are having upgrades planned or, um, you know, I often see supermarket, a lot of supermarkets will maybe change their location from one space in a neighbor in a town to another space or a larger space. Um, libraries often have facelifts and budgets to do certain things in their spaces as well. Closing a street, that's a couple permits and a budget away. Like these things are possible to do. So I would just encourage anyone listening if they're, if that is their daily work to think about how to incorporate it. Before I go into child traffic or child pedestrian safety, just flipping it back to you, Nemo, how did you get to school every day? Um, in elementary, middle, and high school, and what did you have any transportation challenges or anything like that? Yeah, so for elementary school, I walked to school. I would say it was about a mile uphill. <laughs> um, middle school also walked to school, and there was no sidewalk until a new housing development was built on the other side of that street, and then they had a sidewalk on that side but I believe it was facing the opposite way. Like you want to be walking towards traffic. If I was to walk on that side of the street, I would be walking with my back to traffic, like depending on either way, just one sidewalk on one side of the street isn't great. But um, yeah, for, for a while that I, I haven't gone back to that road since I've been back. So I wonder if they have sidewalks on both sides now, but middle school was a bit of a risk, but we would often be walking in big groups. Um, and even part of my walk to elementary school also didn't have a sidewalk. I do remember a crossing guard when I kind of got to the main road um, that my school was on and then high school had a bus. In a group, what do you mean? In, like a couple of kids from your neighborhood would all leave together at the same time to walk to school together? Yeah, or we just naturally, school got out and we would just be in a cluster walking. And then in the morning, would you guys meet up to walk also together to school? In the morning, it was a little bit more spread out. So it was never really planned meeting, but yeah. That's interesting. You walked to school in elementary school a whole mile. So you were like seven and you were walking. Well, walking. <laughs> I think and it's I know you lived in the suburbs, but it's just so interesting to me because my like wasn't no walking going on. I lived so far from my schools and this goes into urban planning also because the part of town that I lived in was like an older part of town. So all of the houses where I lived were totally different. Every single house was somebody built this house. When the town continued to grow, it was more development. So somebody would come and buy up several acres and then build a bunch of houses and might make five copies of the house. That is where the town started to like form. So those are where the schools and stuff were located. So those kids could walk to school. My cousins who lived over there would walk to school. My grandfather dropped me off at school every day in elementary school. And then in middle school, I got on the bus and 
in high school, I rode the bus until people I knew had cars and I would ride in their cars. Right when I got a car, I would drive myself to school. But none of the I couldn't have walked to any of those schools. Um, yeah, no, there was no way. It's, it, my high school was basically on a highway. Like so I was about to say, there was a highway and median, a barrier. <laughs> uh, what's, what's the jug handle? Yeah, and there's like a, a traffic circle. There's so much stuff to get to that school. Um, so I never I never had the pleasure of walking, but I think it's so interesting to to know that that's like like that young. Like I can't imagine walking. I can't imagine sen- I have nieces. I can't imagine sending my nieces out to like walk to school. And then so this brings up the concept that I wanted to get into with this and I'm glad that you talked about that because a lot of kids don't go to school in their town or in their district, particularly if they go to private school or charter school. So the walking aspect of it is not possible. A lot of kids take public transportation to their school because they're going to school outside of their main district. Maybe their town, maybe the city has school choice, but maybe there's like open district, like in LA, it's an open district. So whether you live in, well, that's not the same town, whether you live in, the like mid Wilshire area or you live in South Central it's Los Angeles Unified School District so you can go to school in any of those districts but what it often means is that kids in low performing districts often minority and low income districts are commuting far to get to schools in better performing districts, often whiter and more affluent districts. I know several people who are from like the Inglewood, South Central area, and they would have to get up. School might start at eight. They're on the bus at like six in the morning, getting all the way across town to go to school and then doing it again at nighttime, all because the school in their district is terrible. And so this is where all of the aspects of planning come into play, right? So you have the transportation aspect of it all, right? How how do, is the bus schedule set up for somebody trying to get to grade school or is it up for somebody trying to get to work, right? Like how is the schedule and where's the stations? And then there's a question of school quality, like how does school quality, which I feel like is like right outside of planning in a way, impact transportation decision we know it impacts where people want to choose to live right I might choose to buy a house if I'm planning on having a family in a school district that's like a better neighbor when we see when we see a lot of deals that might be something that they quote like oh this is in a grade a school district or something like that because they're trying to market it to families but school quality impacts your transportation and like your ability to move and I've always lived in a town that was not a unified schools district and so you had to go to the school that you were assigned to and I just happened to live in a town where all the schools were great schools to go to but I know that that is a privilege that I had that a lot of kids don't experience particularly kids that look like me yeah I feel like it's definitely brings in like the urban form and living in an urban environment which you know now I think we're in a place where various incomes and like social backgrounds are choosing to live in cities versus at different times in history where the inner city was um, reserved for people with lower incomes and then everyone within the suburbs and now it's kind of mixed and I think with that mixing brings in the school quality and the transportation challenges 
because I don't know how much local transit authorities are really thinking, especially local transit authorities that live in, that are in places where they don't have school buses are thinking about planning for students. I know a lot of times in DC, it's the, well, these kids aren't paying and they're jumping over the fair gates or they're causing trouble or doing that versus like, how can we help this structure so that they can get to school safely? Like, I don't know how much local transit authorities are in the safe routes conversations. No, the kids in DC are so funny. That summer I spent there, they would definitely just be hanging out, jumping over the thing. I'm like, I like these kids. <laughs> um, so to transit, I'll jump to transit really quickly. A lot of um like the MTA in New York has a, a program where if you're using the train for school, it's like a free, the kids have like a special pass. LA has a similar thing. Interesting though, your school has to, so some kind of way the school is paying for this to happen. The school has to kind of have the partnership with the transit authority because they acknowledge that kids are riding the bus or the train to get to their school. And so they might pay the transit authority X number of dollars so that they can have certain number of, um, passes like it's a relationship between the school and the transit authority so I thought that was interesting and I I do know my friends who are from LA that have lived here and went to school here that's what they did they had like a free pass that let them get but that doesn't stop the fact that so you just walked a mile by yourself or with kids to school but some people are traveling like 10 miles to get to school on a bus and you're like 12 like that's kind of I would be terrified like I'm sometimes terrified on the train by myself and I'm a grown woman so I'm trying to think about me being a kid and like having a backpack and all sorts of stuff but crime is everywhere and danger is everywhere um to get to pedestrian safety and walking to Nemo's experience walking in a three-year period between 2017 and 2020 2,500 kids died from pedestrian injuries related to their walking throughout their their town um the highest demographic being teenagers people from age 15 to 19 years old and children in non-metro areas so the those rural and, and more suburban leaning areas die 40 percent more than children in metro areas and maybe that's because they're walking further or the landscape is even less so designed for pedestrian safety but that is a fact and so a lot of child pedestrian fatalities and child pedestrian safety issues can be improved with the same things that we talked about in our episode for older adults. That's why they have a lot of organizations called eight to 80 cities thinking about people, the world from eight to 80. And in planning, we talk about the concept of if you plan for the most vulnerable population, you've planned for everyone, right? So if you plan for the person with the disability, you've also planned for me without a disability, right? Because it's accessible to everyone. And so when you plan for children, when you plan for seniors, you're planning for everyone. Nobody else is going to be harmed by making something um, more convenient for a more vulnerable person. And so a lot of those recommendations, it's interesting the issue of child pedestrian safety has gone up into a public health crisis. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is the professional organization for pediatricians and all 
like people who are involved in child health, they put out a policy statement in 2023 on child pedestrian safety. And they recommended a couple things for street design that would improve child safety. The first being reducing speed limits to have 25, 20 mile per hour zones, to have photo speed cameras in school zones, to add crossing guards at intersections adjacent to school. So Nemo saw that crossing guard when she got close to her school, to advocate for pedestrian infrastructure in, in terms of changing the roadways, and to develop a robust surveillance system to collect data on child safety and injury networks. And so when I read that list, I was like, well, this is everything we need to do anyway. We all need, we need to make streets safer for everyone. And so that's the concept of planning for the most vulnerable population. In terms of, this is a fact that I thought was interesting in LA. My grandmother was a crossing guard and not, and I just took it for granted. Like I thought every school district had a certain number of crossing guards, but it's not the case in LA. And I'm sure it's probably the same in other large cities like New York or Chicago. You have to ask for a crossing guard. You're not just assigned one. And in LA, there's like a criteria. When I when I went to the website, it also had a flag saying like, this is sure it's a crossing guard. So you could put in your request now, but TBD and when we're going to assign you one. And to me, that's just crazy. Like put a police officer out there or somebody like all these people working, all these people that need jobs, and a crossing guard could be a job. Like they get twenty dollars an hour. They work for like four hours a day. Like that's nothing, but it's something for different people, and it's helping child safety. But I know even for the the crossing guard that's on the outside of the neighborhood where I live now, um, in D.C. And like when I'm coming back from the gym in the morning, even just seeing her standing there in like bright yellow does something to make sure I'm aware, because in my mind I'm not necessarily. I'm a safe driver. I am y'all, but there's just like, I'm like, Ooh, let me get home shower. Cause I got to go to work. There's kids coming. There's kids around. Um, and so even just seeing her presence there, I feel like is important. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people complain about photo speed limit, but it's making you, it's going to, if that's what it takes to make you slow down, especially around young people. And even the stats you read on the deaths, it just like breaks my heart. Um, that and we all need to be more careful and we all every minute we step out onto the street whether it's us just walking across the road to target whether you know we park our cars and walk we become a pedestrian and we become also vulnerable like jasmine was saying to these incidents as well no matter how old we are yeah um dc is notorious for their uh photo speed cameras particularly on certain streets i think florida avenue is one of them and when I go down Florida Avenue, you come off that that beltway trying to get into D.C., but it's slow. Yo, behind, down. They done got me about two or three times, and I don't play when I'm on that street now. Everybody put your brakes on because I'm not trying to get no $50 ticket in the mail that you know you're going to forget, and now it's $150 before you know it. And I do think um, those cameras are effective because sometimes, and it's tricky because sometimes they can cre create, like, an equity issue because if you're enforcing right without changing the landscape or changing the infrastructure are you just trying to create revenue like we know that narrower lanes reduce speeding right but you didn't narrow the lane so you still have 15 foot lanes but you're telling me the speed limit is 25 miles per hour there's no traffic lights for 
five miles, but the speed limit is supposed to be 25 miles per hour. And so you're going to give me a ticket. But at what point do you generate enough revenue from these tickets to narrow the street? Like, that's the part where the infrastructure and the enforcement always, like, play into each other for me. To get to the transit piece, I want to bring this up and not lose it. Um, 4% of transit riders are actually between the age of 15 and 19 years old nationwide. That's from APTA, which I'm going to forget the name of that, but it's like the American Association of Public, tra- I got it, Public yeah. Transit Professional. American Public Transit Association. There you go. Thank you, Nemo. Public Transportation Association, I think is what they are. Mm-hmm. So 4%. A small number, but not really, right? When you think about all of the people who are riding the train at or transit and bus train and bus at any time, four percent of them are teenagers. Like that's pretty significant. And then a greater share of them are on the bus versus the train. So two times the number of kids riding the train are on the bus. And so that was shocking to me because it makes sense, right? Often train stations are not near schools bus stops have a particular unique in that they can be located like pretty closely to multiple things at the same time and so that made sense to me to see the kids more likely on the bus um and then when your kid is riding transit there's a whole nother set of rules they have to abide by they got to know the train schedule to know the bus route they got to know to stay away from that little yellow line so they don't get hit by the train when it's coming out they got to have transit fare they have to learn how to then navigate the street again so every there's a concept that everybody's a pedestrian, whether you're walking from your house to your driveway, from your building to your parking garage, or from your bus stop to your final destination. At some point, you're going to be a pedestrian along your journey. Having longer commute times. If you're on the bus, that means that you're probably going more than a walking distance. You're probably going two or 10 miles and then arriving to school on time. If the bus is late, you're going to be late. If you miss your bus, you're going to be late. And so tardiness is like a huge thing you can get suspended and all that stuff for being late to school um and so the urban institute which we love has a report on road to school which analyzes commute time in various cities that offer school choice and so they looked at denver dc new york new orleans and detroit and the data showed that on average students living in poverty versus students not living in poverty live within the same distance that they live within the same distance to schools right so there might be schools in those areas however the quality of that school differs dramatically so much so that affluent students are more likely to go to school in their district whereas low-income students are more likely to pass to school in their district on their way to another district to get to school and so in planning we talk a lot about this jobs housing mismatch where people have to live further away from job centers and then commute further. But it seems like there's also a schools to housing mismatch in terms of people are living near these schools, but the schools aren't quality enough. And so I was kind of left with this episode thinking about like, <clears throat> are planners doing enough to influence schools and education and like what can be done more so that people don't have to pass their elementary school, their middle school, their high school on their way to get to a better one. Yeah. I feel like that really leaves like the open, open thoughts about where education and um, planning collide 
um because even thinking about it just from like development of like new schools like we talked about earlier in your neighborhood like schools were built to match where newer homes were being built um and you know were those schools good and then like 10 years later are they still like the same quality like who knows how that how that goes and then schools are pretty set in their places too so they don't move as much like other things in the built environment they're not moving as much um but then I don't know do people move more than their school like how does one think about like the long-range planning of uh, schools and transportation and housing the unfortunate part about schools is that they might not move but they close um in reading the Detroit and New Orleans New Orleans of course dealing with Hurricane Katrina, so many of their schools just never reopened, whether because of damage or because of population loss. Meek Mill, you know, we love rappers on this podcast, but Meek Mill is like, he says something in one of his songs, like they closing all the schools, but the prison's getting opened. And that spoke to me in a very particular way because it might not be a direct correlation, right? But it, it's saying something about where we are in society, that schools are closing, but we keep building more prisons. And so what is going on in the world are we are we missing something is education if we're lacking so much education across low-income minority populations when you don't when you're not and I'm not gonna say formally trained but education is strongly related to like crime so when you don't have a positive education in your life you can't find a good job you can't do all these things you need to eat you need money some kind of way so what are you gonna do and so that's a conversation that is beyond the scope of this episode in particular but school and planning education and planning is something that's always been like just right outside of our topic like we'll go to transportation we'll go to land use we'll go to housing but like planners and transport and education there's not enough conversation in my opinion about it even just thinking about this episode there were so many different directions that we wanted to go and that's why we said we want to have a follow-up conversation and you know I wouldn't be surprised if it comes up again throughout this season and in future episodes but this was just a little teaser um we hope that um you all like well one we want to hear from you all other conversations about this that you all might be thinking that we didn't capture um in this episode so please send us an email um reach out to us on social media um and stay tuned for more of these both internal external fringe conversations around around planning um and we drop episodes every other tuesday and you can find us on x formerly known as twitter or instagram at the four degrees pod peace out y'all